Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's call. At that time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1. Today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning uh, to many, many listeners on the East Coast. Good very early morning to many listeners uh, west of here, uh, and I suppose we're going to have some dialing in from other parts of the world, which we always do. These uh, ground truth briefings, which the Wilson Center is hosting uh, uh, very, very frequently uh, during this uh, um, enhanced telework period for us, uh, are attracting hundreds and hundreds of listeners, and we're very proud of the fact that we bring thought leadership and really serious quality to what we do. This is our 151st Ground Truth Briefing. That's kind of a high number, and it highlights articles and interviews in the latest edition of the Wilson Quarterly, uh, which is called uh, Who Writes the Rules? Congratulations to Editor Richard Byrne, who is on this call for a fantastic spring issue and an excellent interview with one of the speakers on this call. By the way, this is Richard's fourth issue, and right when this call is over, uh, you must, must, mandatory, log on to wilsonquarterly.com to read this edition. Uh, Joining us to talk about how new technology rules, especially those governing fifth-generation mobile networks, or 5G, will reshape communications, geopolitics, and trade are... One, former Wilson Fellow and New York Times phenom David Sanger and his co-author Mary Brooks of ARC Media. Uh, David authored his recent uh, highly reviewed book at dot, 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 the Wilson Center, and we uh, credit uh, ourselves with all of his major success, Uh, but more seriously, we are honored that he's on this call, that he was a scholar at the Wilson Center, and that he's a dear friend. Uh, Also joining us is Meg King, director of our Science, Technology, and Innovation Program, an invaluable advisor to me in my roles as CEO of the Wilson Center, but also as a digitally challenged adapter. Um, I couldn't uh, make my gadgets work without Meg's constant oversight. And finally, uh, we're joined by former Wilson Fellow and GW Professor of Political Science, Henry Farrell. As David and Mary point out in their piece, Battlefield 5G, quote, the struggle over 5G is about far more than trade or technological advantage. It is about the power to control a nation's infrastructure and in time of conflict to cut off an adversary's ability to communicate. And that makes geopolitics as important as the technology, unquote. As the number one think tank in the world in regional studies, the Wilson Center is well positioned to offer analysis on this challenge by David and Mary. Moderating our discussion today is Ann Bowser, Deputy Director of the Science, Technology, and Innovation Program that we call STIP. She's leading our work on open space and launches a major citizen science initiative next week in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day with the State Department and others. Uh, special thanks, uh, Anne, for making time for us today. And please, all listeners, remember next week uh, to follow what we're doing on Earth Day. So now, please join me in welcoming Ann Bowser. Thank you for the introduction, Jane. And we look forward to hearing your intervention when it's time to ask the first question to our panelists. At this point, I'm happy to hand it over to David Sanger, for a quick overview of 5G and his perspective on the topic. Well, thanks, Anne, and thank you, Jane, and thanks for having me uh, as a Wilson Scholar to uh, write The Perfect Weapon. And um, uh, it's the second book I, I wrote it at Wilson, and uh, it's, a, it's a great place to be, uh, to be doing this. And thanks to uh, Mary Brooks, who you'll hear from in a, in a little bit, who... Uh, uh, was critical in both the book and the forthcoming um, HBO documentary uh, based on the perfect weapon, uh, which we'll be covering some of these 5G issues. Um, so 
5G is not like the technologies that went before it. You're accustomed to your cell phone having moved from 3G to 4G, and each time you were told it was going to be a little bit faster. And, of course, it never made your reception any better. But 5G isn't really about us and about our cell phones, although it will improve uh, their speed, and you'll be able to take a Netflix movie that might take 20 minutes to download right now over a cell network and do it in 20 seconds or less. But what it's really about is the Internet of Things, because it will allow factories, farms, any place that's distant or has remote elements to it that right now cannot be connected easily over a, a hardline network to be able to use the cell network just as quickly. And, of course, that means that it's got different components to it. There's a core switching system. Uh, there are the traditional radio towers, which will have to be upgraded. There's a huge amount of software, and we'll get into that because it's the software that creates, of course, most of the vulnerabilities. And if you're thinking about how this can make life different, think first about autonomous cars because um, a car that is running autonomously needs to have constant and instant connection to um, both uh, the towers and then up to uh, some kind of cloud control so that it can see what's coming around the corners, so that it can plot your um, your path over time as it becomes smarter. You know, it will know uh, not to drive you down a certain street or uh, that there's construction going on someplace. And then, of course, you think of the many military uses, probably the first to adopt uh, some of this, because as our weapons become more autonomous, uh, this will be a critical uh, technology. So, this quickly becomes the poster child for why you wouldn't want to be dependent on any foreign power, including China, uh, for all of the technology. But the fact of the matter is, you're not going to be able to avoid that. We live in an interdependent world. And so the question is, how do you manage that? Uh, so uh, as one intelligence official uh, put it recently, our intelligence uh, community is very good about warning about the vulnerability but is not terribly good about telling us what to go do with this. And that's what Mary and I tried to get at in, in the piece. The issue isn't really just a trade question. Uh, it's a national security question. Um, and uh, the national security question may not be the one you're thinking about. We're not really worried about the question of whether the Chinese are listening into our conversations or downloading our data. It turns out they're pretty good at doing that at 3G and 4G uh, as well. And if you saw those sections of the perfect weapon that dealt with this, of course, the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management hack and so forth, happened in a pre-5G um, era. The bigger question is, if we ever got into a conflict with China or we became dependent on China or any other producer for uh, building out our network, how much do you want to have a foreign dependence here? And this issue, of course, has come up in other arenas, most recently in COVID, because we've discovered that our dependency on pharmaceuticals, our dependency on ventilators and other things that two months ago we didn't think of as national security issues, but today we do, um, have the same issue. So, so the first question is the supply chain one. The global supply chains mean that you are globally interdependent. And I think one way to think about this is to try to think about what are your truly vital national security items. So, for example, we wouldn't have any problem buying military uniforms from China or Russia. But we might not want to buy our F-35s from China or Russia. And as I wrote in a story in the Times yesterday, if you won't buy your F-35 from a foreign country, why would you buy your N95 masks from a foreign country? So there are certain things that you would decide you really need to produce at home. And 5G may well fall into that category. So um, it would be an easy thing to say, okay, well, that's fine. We're just going to build our 5G technology at home. The problem is we don't have an American producer right now. The two big competitors for uh, Huawei – uh, which, of course, has gotten most of the headlines in the 5G space, are Nokia and Ericsson. 
They're much weaker competitors than Huawei is. Their technology, while impressive in places, is both uh, more expensive and a little bit harder to install for some parts of this. And so um, we are struggling with the question of whether or not the United States should, as some in the administration have argued, buy into Nokia and Ericsson and so forth. Even if you did that, you have to remember that you're not going to take Chinese producers, Huawei in particular, but not just Huawei, out of the system. You are still going to be connecting calls and connecting Internet of Things messages across a global network, and that means you're going through the Chinese network or a Chinese-dominated network. You're still exchanging technology and parts. And so the issue is not simply can we produce at home, but how do we learn to live in a dirty network, a network where we can't control where all of our messages go, and that means you're giving up some control over parts of your national security. And that means adopting the system so that we have confidence that we can build the key parts we need from uh, in the U.S. or from allied producers, that we can't be cut off, that we can really monitor what the software looks like as it gets updated every single week the way your cell phone does. And most importantly, that we design our communications so that we are somewhat um, certain of their safety. And what does that mean? That means we need very full encryption. For all these arguments you're hearing, including from the U.S. government right now, about why uh, you need encryption that can be can have a hole in it for a backdoor in it for law enforcement and so forth. You may need that, but the truth of the matter is that you can't do that all the time. You're going to need to be able to protect your own um, networks as well. Thank you, David. And the how to live in a dirty network world question is critical. Mary, do you have anything to add or augment? Yeah. um, Good morning, everyone. And thank you again to the Wilson Center for having us today. Um, I think the first point that I just want to make is this is not just about Huawei's technology. Um, Blocking Huawei has long been the public face of the U.S.'s 5G security strategy, but the situation is a lot more complicated than any one company or even one technology. Um, And you can see this because even in just the few weeks since we published this paper with Wilson, the U.S. government's strategy has continued to expand against other Chinese telecommunications entities. Um, A great example of this was Team Telecom's recent request to the FCC to revoke the license of China Telecom to operate to and from the U.S. Um, China Telecom is a large Chinese state-owned telecommunications company. Um, Its peer competitor, China Mobile, was already blocked last year. And and frankly, the evidence against China Telecom is is fairly compelling in this case, given that they have been tracked rerouting data to and from North America and Europe back to China um, by exploiting a fundamental weakness of the Internet. But I would say it's not quite the same level of significance as the Huawei controversy, given that the U.S. has many telecommunications carriers of its own, but it doesn't have its own Huawei equivalent. Um, But what this really does is speak to the U.S. government's fears of Chinese control over the communications network at all levels, whether that means blocking the carriers and the 5G component producers, or even, uh, again, recently preventing U.S. companies, Google and Facebook, from turning on their undersea cable, which would have increased connectivity between the U.S. and China. And it's really the idea that if it's bad to have foreign companies controlling certain parts of your telecommunications systems, it would be even worse to have them layered on top of each other. Um, But it's a little also, it's a little bit worrisome that this intense focus on the risks posed by a single country, that is China, seems at this point to compose the bulk of the U.S.'s public 5G strategy, Um, and that the way that they're doing it is mainly by blocking Huawei rather than establishing a positive alternative or more broadly and effectively pushing for U.S. competitiveness and dominance um, in that way. And I think that would lead me to my second point, um, which is this idea of the splinternet or internet balkanization. 
Uh, for anyone unfamiliar with that concept, it's the idea that we're seeing the global Internet being divided along geographic or political or, or other lines. And this concept has been around for years, but 5G seems likely to accelerate this division, this trend, in a couple of ways. First is that we've already been seeing this balkanization as a tool of social control in many countries. China has provided proof of concept. Uh, that it's possible to effectively control large swaths of your population's connectivity. Um, and not only are governments realizing that, hey, this works really well in one-off situations, think about the six-month Internet shutdown in Kashmir, um, but whole systems of control exported from China to authoritarian countries have been popping up. Uh, I think the Times did a really good piece on this last year. So when you add 5G into this, um, you get that greater capacity for the Internet of Things um, that David previously mentioned. And the great thing about the Internet of Things talking to each other is that you can take humans out of this loop entirely so that, for example, a self-driving car can operate effectively. But it's that same technology that also enables you to track what your citizens are doing um, more accurately and effectively. And if they don't do what the state wants, it makes it easier to go after them. Um, but, of course, controlling your Internet is also a broader national security issue in the U.S., people generally remember Edward Snowden for exposing domestic espionage. Um, but if you look at the long-term impact, what he really did was blow the whistle on just how superficial our assumption was that the global Internet infrastructure, as it's currently arranged, could actually do a good job at keeping data private, um, without encryption, that is. So we saw that if your data is passing through a country, um, another country, or potentially over that other country's infrastructure within your own country, well, then that country has a pretty good odds of getting at that data if they really want it and their laws let them, um, regardless kind of, of, of where they are. And again, bringing that back to 5G, we've already been seeing the Internet splitting between Chinese and Russian and Western versions. Um, but with 5G, there's the risk increased that these physical networks, so the, the hardware, the supply chains, are also splitting. Um, and if only Huawei and its supply chain are serving China and Asia, and only Nokia and Ericsson are supplying the West, you're not only risking limiting information between the two, but you're limiting the scope of American business and competitiveness, too. And you're limiting it at a, at a moment when you need a lot of components from that global supply chain, and you rely on them. Um, and worse, you risk cutting the U.S. out of the global supply chain instead of Huawei, um, because Huawei and Chinese companies will have to create and sell their own workarounds by necessity, in response to U.S. import-export bans. And then just to wrap up, I would say, you know, that as David alluded to earlier, there's obviously a limit to how far these governments, excuse me, these internets can divide each other up. Uh, the internet has always been subject to government authorities and the states and territories uh, where it operates. But you can't have what we rely on, this global rapid commerce and communication, without inter-country connectivity. And, and that's, I think, why you get people like former deputy, uh, the former deputy director of national intelligence, Sue Gordon, saying that we're going to have to presume a dirty network and we're going to have to prepare for that. Thank you, Mary. The question of who can control what to what degree is very important. And I also appreciated the points that you made around American competitiveness. Speaking of America and allies, um, Meg, would you like to share your perspective? Sure, thanks. Um, so, uh, as so much attention is focused on the, as some people call it, race between the United States and China on emerging technologies, I decided in, in this piece in the quarterly to investigate how, if better organized, North America might shift that power dynamic in the future. The region has at least five structural home court advantages that can't be replicated quickly, so there's some time to make use of them. Number one is um, the newly ratified U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, which has the first ever digital chapter removing barriers and adding protections so more products and services can be bought and sold online. For example, simple but important time-saving measures like requiring each nation to accept digital signatures. It creates a duty-free internet for importing or exporting digital products like stream music, one of the most lucrative digital industries to date, and games, a rapidly growing market across the region, which is similar to the concept of duty-free shopping in an airport. And it protects intellectual property like source code and algorithms so business feels comfortable trading rapidly. Two, North America also enjoys top university and research facilities, 
and not just the name brands we all know. Many of the significant advances in AI over the last five to ten years are due in research, to research in the Toronto Waterloo Corridor in Canada, for example. And Mexico graduates more engineers than countries each year than countries like Germany, Brazil, or Spain, and is the sixth highest rate in the world. Three, despite the COVID crisis, there is still a lot of money being invested across the region in new technology capabilities. In March, Verizon announced it was boosting its estimated capital investment this year by $500 million to as much as $18.5 billion to accelerate its 5G efforts. And AT&T canceled a planned $4 billion stock buyback at the end of March to instead keep cash available for helping workers and enhancing their 5G network because we're all at home struggling with 4G. <laughs> Number four, we also have one of the largest pools of mobile phone users funded by both consumers and business who spend a lot of money, which is attractive to any company seeking to sell services across future 5G networks when they're in place. And five, we have unique data sets. As David mentioned earlier, um, we don't need 5G for those to be attractive to other nations. Um, but in my piece, I use the California DMV as an example which generates each year $50 million selling its data. Um, companies know this data is accurate. It offers names, addresses, and who drives cars. And in the USMCA agreement, the parties agreed to expand access to and use of government information. Um, it's not clear what data will be shared as this agreement is being implemented, but it could be census or tax revenue data, which is very useful for business in targeting the right services to the right consumers, of course, assuming it would be anonymized and privacy protected. So understanding that North America has these advantages, why does 5G matter? Mostly because, and David touched on this a bit, it will serve as a kind of Swiss Army knife for business in the next few decades. Um, use cases include healthcare, um, and it's not just telemedicine. and eventually we'll think about reliable remote surgery, advances in mobility like drones fighting forest fires using real-time video imagery, Smart manufacturing, which is probably the most important for our region, means that um, manufacturing can be timed to the minute a needed part can arrive on the factory floor through machine-to-machine -machine communication functions. And precision agriculture becomes possible with sensor data allowing adjustments in real time to weather conditions. So this means more trade and more jobs. So what needs to happen um, as a policy matter? As the trade agreement is being implemented, uh, North American governments need to use this opportunity to develop a strategy for technology innovation. Um, perhaps holding an annual summit, um, they're already going to be in the room. Uh, 5G is just the beginning technology. Think how we can collaborate on AI, how we can co collaborate on quantum information science and technology, and that ranges from sensors all the way through to computing. We need to think about creating legal frameworks for sharing technology ideas and mechanisms for collecting and analyzing streams of data generated by each nation. And we need to consider shared regional technology innovation incubators, where the private sector can sit side by side with policymakers to develop new solutions and offer access to hard to come by chips and computing power to researchers. So we have an opportunity. Uh, I'm obviously looking at the economic piece one, when all the countries are in the room, some of whom are members of multilateral organizations and intelligence alliances, um, some of these security concerns can be addressed and, and figuring out how to live in, and then use these dirty networks will be critical to also allowing economic progress. Thanks. Thank you, Meg, for mentioning um, the relevance of 5G to COVID, which I know is perpetually on all of our minds, and giving an overview of recent policies that matter. I would like to ask Henry, uh, our last expert, to go ahead and give his intervention. So I think that uh, this is – my intervention is based on work that Abraham Newman and I have. Sorry, can you – Hello, can you hear me? I, my, my intervention is based on work that Abraham Newman and I have been doing on what we call weaponized interdependence, uh, where we look at the ways in which centrality in uh, global networks has been used as a form of uh, leverage and strategic power. And so if you think about Huawei, I think that the United States has two advantages that it has sought to use against Huawei. First, that it has a central role in the global financial system, the dollar clearing system, and so on. 
which it has used uh, uh, both to pursue ZTE previously, and also Huawei, uh, the uh, the uh, arrest uh, in Canada of Huawei's CTO. Uh, and this is with respect to possible uh, sanctions and export control violations. And secondly, it also has a central role in the uh, semiconductor industry. Uh, businesses such as Qualcomm are able to supply sophisticated semiconductors which China at the moment simply is not capable of doing. So effectively, the United States has been in, in its uh, efforts to try and fight against Huawei and to prevent Huawei from gaining a kind of a chokehold, has been using both of these tools uh, together to try and uh, limit uh, Huawei's uh, ability to extend itself. Uh, but there has been a lot of a lot, a lot of uncertainty about what exactly uh, Trump wants to do. So roughly speaking, we can think about the uh, Trump administration's attitude towards China as being driven by two different things. First is a long-standing uh, increased hawkishness towards China, which probably would have manifested itself uh, under a Clinton administration had it happened as well, and which effectively focuses on the uh, military threat that uh, China poses. And then there is a President Trump's particular obsessions, which mostly have to do with the balance of trade. So there has been a continual worry throughout that uh, Trump would effectively would uh, trade off concessions on uh, Huawei, as he has done already with ZTE, in order to try to uh, come to some sort of a better trade deal with China, because this is the kind of stuff that he cares about. This is the kind of stuff, frankly, that he has a, a better ability to understand. So this uh, limits, I think, uh, the ability of the United States to uh, pursue Huawei as vigorously as it might otherwise do, is the sense that it isn't quite fully coherent in how it is going to use the tools that it has at its disposal. And if we're to move towards a more positive uh, kind of agenda, which is uh, talking to some of the stuff that Mary talked about when she mentioned the fact that uh, Huawei's major uh, possible competitors are Nokia and Ericsson, then we want to look at, in particular, not just the uh, North American complex that Meg talked about, but also we want to think about Europe, and we want to think about relations with Europe, because both Nokia and Ericsson are European companies. And here I think that we face two other difficult problems in uh, trying to uh, come to ki some kind of accommodation with Europe, which might uh, create some kind of a uh, shared approach going forward to build an alternative route to technology. One of these is, I think, less important, which is that the aftershocks of Snowden are still real. There still is some unhappiness among some people within Europe about what the United States did and about the revelation that the United States had effectively com comprehensively infiltrated the existing infrastructure and made it its own in a, uh, in a manner which was uh, somewhat unilateral. Uh, various uh, concessions that the United States have made, such as a, a presidential directive, went some way towards making Europeans feel a little bit better, but they still aren't 100% happy because those kinds of, uh, those kinds of, uh, of concessions can readily be withdrawn. They're not actually multilateral agreements, but instead they are mere uh, statements of uh, the executive position, which could be uh, very clearly revoked or revised in a variety of ways. So that, I think, is somewhat important, but not extraordinarily important. The more important dampener on more active engagement between Europe and the United States on trying to build up some kind of a shared technology companies and approach to technology going forward is that the Europeans are frankly and not ununderstandably extremely apprehensive about becoming more dependent on the United States in which either Donald Trump is the president or in which somebody like Donald Trump could be uh, elected as president in the future. Because it's very, very clear that uh, Trump uh, in his attitude to allies more or less uh, sees, uh, you know, he sees very, very little obligation to them and any dependencies which allies create uh, could then be exploited against them in the future. So I think that this uh, makes it very difficult for Europeans to want to comprehensively engage with the United States on trying to uh, build some sort of a common approach to technology going forward. Uh, also, I think that the kinds of proposals we have seen, for example, the Attorney General Barr made a proposal that uh, the United States might buy Nokia and Ericsson, uh, uh, or Nokia and R. Ericsson, as a way to uh, try and create a competitor to Huawei. Again, this is something which I think would make so, some people in Europe very, very nervous 
because uh, they would worry that that could be used against them, as well as used in ways that uh, were to their common benefit. So there is a real set of problems, I think, in trying to create a more comprehensive strategy on 5G, which has to do with the election of Donald Trump and the fears of allies that a uh, United States, which could elect somebody like Trump, is uh, frankly not a United States that uh, can be trusted. There is some movement recently within Europe towards uh, thinking about how dependence on China might be a problem. Uh, the relevant uh, member of the European Commissioner, Margrethe Vestager, made a statement a few days ago that uh, the European Commission would be encouraging, for example, if uh, China tried to buy major European companies and if uh, uh, the member states of the European Union sought to take controlling uh, stakes in those companies to prevent this from happening, the European Commission has indicated that it would look favorably upon those member state actions, which is an extremely important change in the Commission's approach to antitrust. But I think that this is uh, very possibly going to be a plague on both your houses kind of situation where the uh, Atlanticist instincts of uh, European allies are very substantially dampened, and this means it is far, far harder to achieve cooperation on many of these issues than it might have been in the past. Thank you, Henry, for talking about the realities of cooperation and our role in facilitating trust. At this point, I would like to invite the Honorable Jane Harmon to go ahead and pose a first question to the panel. Uh, thank you, Anne, and thank you to everyone. Uh, that was fascinating. And David, thank you for speaking slowly and explaining 5G to me. Uh, for This is about the hundredth time it's been explained to me, but you did it in a way that I, I think I got it better than I had before. Uh, I also want to comment that Mary taught me a new word, called Splinternet, and heard that, Meg, you never taught me that word. And I also want to point out to you, Meg, uh, that when you're listing five home court advantages uh, for the U.S., uh, you should have listed the sixth one, which is the Wilson Center. Oh, well. Uh, so I have um, actually two questions. Hope it's okay, but they're a little different. Um, one is um, you, you mentioned the, the relevance of 5G to COVID-19, all of you. Did, or most of you did. If we had 5G fully in place uh, right now, uh, could it be this worldwide coordinator we seem not to have for uh, the supply chain, for ventilators and PPE and all that? Would the Internet of Things powered by 5G, if I said that right, uh, be able to be that kind of a coordinator? That's my first question. My second question is really to Henry, who was talking about Europe's uh, some somewhat resistance to working with us given uh, the leadership that we have. Uh, what about Asia working with us too? What about Samsung, which I gather has a lot of relative, uh, relevant technology also to this whole 5G enterprise? Thank you both. Thank you all. I'm happy to Thank jump you. in. This is Meg, on the uh, the first question, Congresswoman, which is a good one, um, I think the answer is it could help. It, I mean, it, if the world were completely different and we had 5G networks, it could certainly help. I think um, David and Mary's point in their piece about geopolitics is just imp as important as technology um, is relevant in here because it still requires cooperation and collaboration, and the information would still have to be shared by companies that may or may not have connections to governments. David and Mary, do you want to... Take a follow-up stab at that. You know, it's a James raised a really interesting um, question here, and obviously, manufacturing and networks get improved. And once you get 5G in place, you begin to um, invent new applications because the speed of 5G enables you to do things, applications that you can't really conceive of today. I mean, we mentioned uh, autonomous cars, but you know, think about it, before you had cell phones and relatively rapid um, uh, apps, you couldn't have invented Uber, right? It, 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 was the, it was the invention of the technology and the speed of it that enabled Uber and other such real-time systems to come in so you can see where the car is coming and so forth. The one place, Jane, that immediately comes to mind where 5G might be extremely useful not only in the United States, but particularly in the developing world, would be if we could develop a rapid testing system 
uh, for uh, COVID that would enable you to conduct a, a local test um, and then be able to beam to the cloud for the analysis of it and certainly for the reporting of it. So you could imagine using this with very small testing systems, and this you know presumes that we get to something highly efficient like a saliva test or a, a very a sort of do-it-yourself kind of, of uh, testing system where um, the processing of it and the analysis of it may well happen in the cloud whether you are on an Internet network or not because you can use basically a cell phone connection uh, to be able to go do that, and that would require significant processing speed. I think the one thing that I would add is what I'll be waiting to see is if this crisis impacts 5G deployment in the long term. In, in other words, are governments going to be reconsidering their reliance on other countries' technologies and other countries' supply chains because we're all competing for the same masks right now and we're competing for the reportedly the same, you know, vaccinations, um, so, or sorry, vaccines. So, you know, does that kind of carry over uh, to where we start wondering how well and how much we can rely on other countries for these critical needs. But this is Meg again in the smart manufacturing context with you know machine to machine instant um, data transfer and you know you can know when you know your widget is arriving you know when it's ten minutes out. You could in theory create or develop tools like. Uh, and products like masks at a much faster rate if you knew exactly how many you had and how fast you needed to make them and what piece was missing. So. I think the points on supply chain and data sharing are both excellent. Henry, would you like to begin to address the second question on collaboration within Asia, perhaps especially South Korea? Sure, and uh, and also I'd like to just say that the we can we can see how the problems of uh, supply chains feature into this. If we think about, uh, for example, what was happening with CureVac a couple of weeks ago, where the uh, German government believed that uh, the United States might be trying to take over a German company uh, so that it could have exclusive access to a vaccine that company was uh, developing just for the uh, exclusive benefit, as I say, of uh, United States uh, citizens and uh, Germany acted to try and stop that. So that suggests really that we're seeing a lot of this distrust being uh, being uh, stirred up by coronavirus, uh, which is having important consequences. There's also a, a piece by Joachim Reiter in Lawfare today, where he suggests, and he's a, uh, he's a lobbyist uh, for a telecommunications company, so there may be some self-interest, but he's suggesting that the uh, budget hit that European com countries are facing because of the coronavirus means that they're less likely to uh, avoid Huawei in the future uh, because they uh, basically need to get their uh, telecommunications equipment as cheaply as possible. So the, the, the question about South Korea is a very good one, and I think is a long-term one rather than a short-term one. So here, if we think about these technologies, uh, it's pretty clear that in the medium to the long-term, it would be possible to develop competitors to Huawei, but the uh, specific uh, competences that they have reached are going to be very, very difficult to replicate in the short uh, to the medium term. So I think that really what we're talking about here perhaps, whether it be on the part of the United States or whether it be on the part of the United States and some loose alliance of countries that it gets together, if it can solve the problems that I talked about, we're going to have to see some sort of a move back towards a more active industrial policy where we see uh, these kinds of strategic elements uh, playing a much, much more important role than they have during the 1990s and 2000s in U.S. decisions about uh, takeovers, about perhaps even encouraging specific co uh, companies and specific competences to be developed. Because the story that's an important background story here is the story of Lucent, which was, of course, the bit of AT&T that was spun out in order to uh, try and develop telecommunications manufacturing. It was bought first by a, a French company, and then the French company and uh, Lucent were then absorbed by Nokia. But you could imagine a different world in which Lucent had ha experienced a more favorable domestic environment and had been uh, built up to be a competitor, which would then offer the United States far more options uh, than it has right now if we had gone down that different road 15 or 20 years ago. 
Thank you very much. Would any of the other panelists like to add anything on this particular point? Okay, I would like to remind the audience that we would love to hear your questions. Please press star one to be entered into the virtual queue for um, a question and answer from all of you. In the meantime, there's an there's a line from David and Mary's article in the Wilson Quarterly that I love, which says, standard setting and supply chains are boring, and they matter. I would love to hear thoughts from the panelists specifically on the role of standards, whether these are standards for security and trust, the role of different standard setting bodies, or different types of standards such as GDPR, maybe beginning with Henry and Mary and then moving down the line. Sorry, David and Mary, please. Um, well, the uh, the standards uh, section of the piece was to remind people that, um, in a way, standards have been weaponized to some degree uh, here. You, you, different countries use them to try to exclude different technologies uh, at times. They can also be extremely useful to you. One of the interesting uh, questions about 5G is um, why it is that the United States, uh, Europe, and to some degree uh, the Asian countries are operating on uh, different parts of the spectrum, and thus the equipment has to go to, to different standards. Um, it, this, the spectrum issue sounds uh, like a boring one, and it can be, but the th key thing to know is that when you're dealing with 5G technology, there's sort of a sweet spot where uh, you are balancing out how far the signal can go. Think about the fact that an FM signal with its richer tones that it allows on radio can only go a shorter distance than an AM signal. So you want to have um, the richness that you get from FM, but you also want to have the distances that you get from AM, and that's a constant uh, that's a constant back-and-forth uh, issue on the, the radio waves. For um, the United States, part of the difficulty here is that the best part of the spectrum that we want to use is right now reserved for the military. And so one of the issues is can we get the military to share so that you can make our spectrum reach out the best distances? And right now the Europeans, uh, the Chinese and others, are doing a better job with that. The second big issue that comes out of standards is that if you could come up with a common kind of open source technology for um, how to build a 5G network, it would probably do the most to loosen the control of any individual manufacturer, whether it's Huawei or Ericsson or Nokia or Samsung. And one of the most interesting ideas that is kicking around among United States manufacturers is actually to develop an open source architecture for 5G networks that would essentially build an all software design switch that would run on a basically a generic white box that um, you might be able to sell for a couple of hundred bucks. So in other words, you wouldn't be dependent on a Nokia architecture or a, or a Huawei architecture, which, by the way, are not compatible with each other. And that would enable you basically to have an all-software solution and might make it easier to get around these temptations toward nationalism that uh, Henry is, has uh, discussed uh, before there and that came up in Mary's uh, description uh, as well. So those are all things that we can think about uh, for the future. On the all-white box, I can tell you that companies like Microsoft, AT&T, and others have all been working pretty hard on this in, in recent times. Yeah, and this is Mary. Just briefly to add to that, uh, I think that people do forget sometimes that 5G is not just an outcome, but it is a standard. So the tiny little decisions that are made behind the scenes really matter if you want uh, to be able to produce equipment that can be used around the world, um, whether that be, you know, handsets, the technology that connects uh, your phone to the system or the system and routers itself. Um, and the standards are made by those who show up. Um, and that is a concern of U.S. lawmakers right now is 
will some of these import-export bans um, where the U.S. Uh, companies cannot collaborate with Huawei, will that prevent the U.S. from taking some of these, you know, from, from being present in some of these international bodies? Um, Senator Rubio and a group of others just sent out a message a couple of days ago to this extent to, to make sure that, you know, the U.S. isn't harming its own competitive edge by, by not being present and, and really pushing forward standards in these global bodies due to U.S. domestic policy. Uh, this is Henry, just to weigh in on that. Uh, one other problem that the United States has is that internally it, ju it just doesn't have very good ways of linking together the uh, technical expertise and the political expertise that you would need in order to be able to intervene successfully in these kinds of uh, very complicated discussions which involve both in places like the ITU. So the Department of State did have a uh, relatively uh, well, you know, sort of a small team, but nonetheless uh, very good people who are doing this. And uh, of, in, over the last couple of years, like many other aspects of state, uh, this has been uh, run into the ground. So this is a major problem for a uh, new administration to start to think about. If it wants to be able to uh, intervene proactively, it is going to have to uh, build up a lot of competence very, very quickly in bringing these different parts of the uh, thing together. Thanks, all three of you. I absolutely agree. Meg, can you tell us why this matters for security? Um, sure. Um, there are a lot of terms to throw out there, um, but this is why um, it's really important to understand what each of these technologies mean. Um, when we talk about open source, um, first of all, uh, the first thing I think of from a cybersecurity perspective is that um, the more people looking at this kind of software code, the more secure it is. And second, um, it gives us an opportunity to, instead of having to use hardware, we can use virtualized networks in the cloud, and that's what we mean by kind of open source. And um, a month, uh, two months ago, DARPA announced, and I think this is what David was um, relying on, that they're planning a four-year um, program to, to try and create this kind of open source network. So um, obviously the, the security community is trying to come up with some alternatives, uh, and and we can we we think we can do this, and it's uh, actually a pretty innovative idea. So um, so that's that's my point on those two. Thank you, Meg. And now I believe we have time for at least two audience questions, and we are going to start with Dennis Amari. Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, you can. Great. Um, my name is Dennis Amari, and full disclosure, I am employed by Huawei Technologies USA. My question to all of you is um, your perspective on the proposal that was made by the founder um, and CEO of Huawei Technologies to license its 5G um, technology to a U.S. company so that the U.S. could, could um, begin to um, have its own manufacturer in the United States that is um, independent of Huawei, but like is very common in this sector, licenses technologies from another company. What are your thoughts about his proposal? Uh, I'm happy to jump in on this one. It's David. Uh, just to get the conversation going. I think it's the most interesting proposal that I've heard from Huawei or anybody uh, uh, on this issue because the theory of it is that if you license the technology and there was an American maker or a European maker or somebody within the Western Alliance, presumably they would be more confident that they would have control over the technology. The key part of this is whether the licensing goes beyond the hardware, which is relatively straightforward, to the software. Because the vulnerabilities that come in here are that the software constantly gets upgraded. I made a reference to, you know, the way your iPhone is, is updated, you know, every couple of weeks. And when the iPhone gets up, updated, you don't say to yourself, well, I'm not turning my iPhone on until I've examined every line of that code to make sure they haven't created a vulnerability in my phone. You just say, oh, great, my phone got upgraded, and you go ahead and you make your calls. Um, what we would need 
in the United States and Europe and so forth is the confidence that everybody understood what each one of those upgrades were about, that they didn't create a uh, security flaw. Um, I have tried on several occasions to get people in the U.S. administration to address uh, Mr. Wren's uh, suggestion here and say, what's the matter with this? What holes can you poke in this? And they haven't answered the question. And, you know, my usual journalistic uh, instincts tell me that the most interesting questions are the one that the government declines to answer. And so um, I think this one is worth pressing and would probably be made even easier if Huawei opened up that code to something that uh, approached the open source that uh, I was discussing and Meg was discussing before. Thank you. Thoughts from any other panelists? Okay, then I'd like to ask Monte McMurray to pose her question. Uh, thank you. Monte McMurray calling from Toronto, Canada. My question, comment, dealing with this 5G, shall we call it, imbroglio or concern, is that it's dealing with power influence saturated with a high degree of apprehension and fear. How best would it be able to assuage this fear or apprehension in terms of power control? Because I suspect that, for instance, the United States and we in Canada do listen very carefully to what you Americans are doing and saying, notwithstanding your economic suasion that you're able to, 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 to deploy. But how can one assuage this? Because technology at its highest ethos is value neutral. It's only when we human individuals access it that it takes a certain element of concordance, not necessarily being what it was originally designed to do. So my question in brief is, how can we best assuage this? Because technology will not leave us alone. It's going to move. It's going to find a way. And I thank you for your previous comment. I'm happy to take a stab at that. This is Meg. Um, so I think there are a couple of ways that are, uh, at least in the North America context, our government can address that concern. And as there are so many use cases for the public good, whether it's um, public safety or um, and rapid response to, to health care, if during this USMCA implementation process, we focus on some of those easier, less politicized, less complex um, issue areas, and we come up with some kind of rules of the road and ways to work together, um, then I think that that, that kind of conversation um, can help us move towards a more positive, a more positive governance place. Henry here. So I think that one other way to try and do this is to recognize that there are two different ways of thinking about these problems. One which has predominated is the national security focus, which is very much uh, focused on existential threats to the homeland and is very, very difficult to assuage. The other is to think about this from the perspective of computer security. And here I'm stealing ideas from another co-author of mine, Bruce Schneier, uh, to start thinking about this in terms of uh, uh, threat models and attack surfaces and to recognize that the best that you're ever going to be able to do is not to be able to provide 100% security, but instead to mitigate the most serious threats. And if we start from that basis, it's not a basis of existential terror, but of thinking about this as a set of practical problems to be solved, we're probably going to be able to get much, much further on many of these issues than we otherwise would be. But that does take a, a different way of thinking about these problems and are really thinking about them. You know, I guess the uh, reference that uh, David and Mary made in their piece to the uh, national security official who talked about, the, uh, about us being on a dirty network and starting to work from that and realizing we're not going to be able to get away from that. So how do we keep ourselves uh, as clean as possible? What are the cybersecurity uh, equivalents of uh, making sure that we keep our mouths and our noses covered and we wash our hands at every possible opportunity?
Thank you very much. And I believe we have time for one final question from Suzanne Rossman. Good morning. Uh, thank you for a great talk. This is Suzanne Rothman calling from Washington, D.C. Um, my question is about U.S. government involvement in propelling 5G innovation. Um, so in the Chinese case, clearly government subsidies and funding um, have improved their capacity to be, uh, to be the world leader in this industry. So what are ways the U.S. government can um, get involved and further support American innovation? Well, it's uh, it's David. Um, you know, Meg mentioned uh, one of those, which is there is already a, a government project here on whether or not you can have the open source um, software. Uh, but you know, what I've noticed about this is that some of the the biggest motivations for innovation here have come either from companies that are not in this business yet. I mentioned Microsoft. Um, or companies that are but recognize that their dependency on, um, uh, on, on, on suppliers that may not be able to handle uh, the competition from Huawei uh, is a problem. And that's the big issue surrounding um, the, the, comp the, the issue of, of whether Ericsson and Nokia can actually step in versus Huawei, which obviously gets uh, government support uh, and which has been um, cutting its prices in order to grab market share uh, in Europe and Africa and so forth. Um, so I think you're going to see the companies sort of rally around uh, ideas similar to what Attorney General Barr had, which is whether or not there is a, a way for the U.S. and Ericsson and Nokia to uh, team up in one corporate entity. Now, that would be difficult to pull off, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Mary may have thoughts on this as well because it's something that we, we've discussed some for both the purposes of the article and the film. Yeah, this is, um, this is Mary. Yeah, just to add, I think that this is something that the government is still trying to figure out uh, how to do it. Uh, a couple, I think it was a couple of years ago, there was this leaked plan um, by the National Security Council that contemplated, you know, creating a common network or, I mean, the phrase was nationalizing the 5G network. And that did not go over very well um, with business. And, and the project was basically dead on arrival as soon as it was leaked. But I think, you know, from my perspective, the best thing that the U.S. government can do that it's not doing right now is just come up with consistent rules. Um, so constantly switching back and forth between we're going to ban this company, we're not going to ban this company. Um, there has been for the last year uh, a saga kind of in, internally within the U.S. Um, because a lot of rural operators, well, not a lot, a number of rural operators have incorporated Huawei technologies into their 3G and 4G systems. Um, and the U.S. government you know, first said, well, you might need to take that out. They didn't, you know, they pushed back the deadline. They didn't make the decision. They finally made the decision. It was unclear if that was going to be funded. Finally, the decision was to fund it, but it's unclear if that's enough for all of, you know, the ripping out and the replacing. And I'm just, you know, kind of from every level, from rural networks to, you know, the big, the big four, now the big three, um, telecoms carriers, I, you know, with that level of uncertainty, I, I think that's just got to be really hard to work with. This is Anne. Thank you both for your answers. I think consistent policies is critical and would also reiterate the importance of test beds. I know DOD and NIST are already working in this space. Thank you all for a fabulous contribution, and I will hand it over to Congresswoman Harmon to formally close the Ground Truth Briefing. Uh, thank you, Anne, and thank you, everybody, for explaining uh, very complex material, again, in, in ways that, that digital adapters like me can understand. There are huge policy issues here, but there also is some hope, I think, at least the way I was hearing this, uh, that we can find a way forward that will not lead to this splinternet balkanization, which I don't think will be good for uh, the world's future, especially a world uh, uh, coping with things like... Uh, future pandemics. At any rate, I also want to say that uh, our, our Wilson Quarterly, uh, Richard Burns' uh, fourth issue, 
uh, is accessible on wilsonquarterly.com. It has the material, much of the material that was discussed today in it. Um, this is a way to present it to you, uh, but you've got to read the whole thing. Uh, it's an award-winning publication. It used to be an old magazine um, that was read by a small number of, of uh, folks uh, in the uh, upper stratosphere of age. It is now a world-class magazine, um, all virtual, that's read by everybody and needs to be read by you. So I, I just wanted to remind you <coughs> about that. And um, final comment is uh, that um, we are doing our 152nd Ground Truth Briefing this very day at 1 o'clock on uh, the coronavirus response in Colombia, Colombia, South America. As most of you know, Colombia is adjacent to Venezuela, and there is a huge number of refugees uh, coming out of Venezuela in Colombia and a very hard set of issues around managing the disease. So um, that will be 152, and more to come tomorrow and next days. Uh, please uh, stick with us. We're trying to do our best to explain a complicated world, and we get the best to do that. And again, enormous thanks to uh, Anne, uh, David, Mary, Meg, and Henry. And thanks to the audience. Take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Thank you for your participation. This now concludes today's conference. All lines may disconnect at this time.